God, as we just come uh, to open up your word this morning, we want to confess together uh, how much we need to hear from you. We need to hear your voice. We need to hear your words. Um, just as the, the land and the soil never stops needing the rain in order to be fruitful, we never stop needing your words because they make us fruitful. They make us alive. They keep us alive. And so, Father, we want to come this morning as we begin a new term, a new season. Um, we want to ask again, would you speak to us by your word and by your spirit? Would you speak to us words that do us good, words that set us free, words that give us life, words that wake us up, words that bring healing to the deepest parts of us and make us new? We know that you love to speak to us. Uh, and so we want to say right now, we're listening. We want to pay attention uh, to the things that you want to say. And we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Um, so I'm going to start uh, very logically um, in tackling a new book uh, by jumping right into the middle. So, so um, I want to take you to a verse right in the middle of Ephesians, which I think kind of sums up uh, maybe a lot of the, the big themes uh, that are in this book and why, why I've called the series Growing Up. Um, so this is uh, Ephesians chapter 4, um, verses 14 and 15. And this is what it says. It says, Then we will no longer be infants. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. We'll look, we'll look later on in the series at those verses in more detail, but I just want to introduce that theme of the a big part of Paul's purpose in writing this letter is that we will no longer be infants, we'll no longer be little children, we'll no longer be immature, but we will in every way grow up in Christ. In every way that we will grow up. This is a letter designed to help you and I grow up. And I guess I guess I want to ask you right at the beginning, um, do you do you recognize this morning? That, that might be something you need. And I'm very aware there are people in the room at every stage of life and people who are uh, old enough to be my parents or older. Um, so I don't want to speak disrespectfully to anybody, but I want to ask, are you aware this morning that there are still areas in your life where maybe you're still a little immature, maybe still a little bit of an infant, um, maybe still have room to grow? Maybe I want to suggest if you're paying attention to your life, there should never be a stage of your life at which you think, I've arrived, um, I've no more growing to do, I'm mature in every way. Um, you should always have an awareness of there's still more growing to do. Um, but I guess um, maybe, maybe I'm going to kind of insult you all right at the beginning. Um, but I want to, um, I've been, I've been, maybe part of why I've been thinking about this theme of growing up. I think I've been reflecting a lot recently that I think the, the conditions of our culture right now are not very conducive to helping us grow up. I think there are different aspects of our culture right now that tend to keep us immature, keep us infantilized, keep us a little bit juvenile, and that maybe at times our culture left itself, if we don't get help from somewhere else, our culture turns us into kind of big babies. Some of you will recognize the, the image on the screen from uh, the Pixar movie uh, Wally, a little robot. 
And Wally, Wally is set in a future where it is not that hard to imagine, where human beings have trashed planet Earth so badly that they've had to leave Earth and are now living on spaceships in space. Um, and on these spaceships, technology kind of does everything for them. So they sit in these big chairs that kind of float around and move around and get them where they want to go, and they never have to get out of their chairs. And their food is prepared for them by their computers and machines. And they have these screens that are permanently in front of their face. So even when they're talking to the person beside them, they talk to the screen. Um, and a lot of it is not that, that it's, it's a little bit exaggerated from where we are, but maybe not that much. Um, so you'll be wondering, what are the things in our culture that kind of keep us immature, that keep us as infants? Um, I, I, that's a question that maybe I'd love for us to sort of throw around during this series, and I'd love to uh, hear your thoughts. Um, for me, even just starting to think about it, I think the screens in front of our face have to be a big part of the story. Um, you think about the hours and hours and hours that we spend flicking mindlessly through the channels or binge-watching um, hours and hours of our favourite show or scrolling through social media or playing computer games or watching other people play sport. I'm speaking to myself here. I'm not, not having to go with anybody else. But all of that is time when we're not really most, mostly growing or learning or loving, or risking, or creating, or living, but just consuming. And I think that's part of what is maybe making us a culture of big babies. Uh, certainly it keeps us uh, as consumers. I've thought a lot this summer about uh, Rachel Martin's challenge earlier in the summer about how we consume rather than create a lot of the time. I find that so helpful. Uh, and consuming all the time just makes us into big passive babies. I hope you're not offended uh, by what I'm saying. One of my, my favourite uh, little frame from Calvin and Hobbes as Calvin watching television. And Hobbes says to him, what are you doing? He says, I'm killing time while I wait for life to shower me with meaning and happiness. It's uh, as good a summary of the way we often live as anything. We're filling time and killing time while we wait for something to happen, but we're not uh, acting as grown-ups and the world to go on, uh, and go on a journey and go and uh, explore and learn and grow. Um, sometimes I wonder um, if our Christian culture is not much better. Sometimes our Christian culture can keep us as infants as well. Um, it's very easy to find somebody in our Christian culture who can tell you how to get born again. Sometimes it can be a wee bit harder to find somebody who can tell you how to grow up from being a born again Newborn, newborn in Christ to being really mature. Uh, sometimes we approach the spiritual life as consumers and sometimes we come to church just wanting an emotional buzz and wanting to be entertained and if we get it we're happy and if we don't get it we grumble and complain um, or change the channel. Um, and sometimes we remain dependent in our spiritual life on being spoon-fed and we don't really grow up. I wonder does any of that ring true for you? Do you recognise any of that as sometimes true? I think there are things in our cultural conditions, both in the world and sometimes in the church, that keep us from growing up. Um, so I, I definitely recognise that to be true. My own generation, we are uh, well into our 40s, 
and talk all the time about how we find adulting, we made that a verb now, really hard. Adulting is hard, we say. Um, people talk about how adolescence lasts now in our 20s and 30s and beyond. It's something that's making it hard for us to grow up. And so maybe that's part of why I'm trying to persuade you we need a book that might give us some help in growing up in every way, spiritually, emotionally, mentally, socially, as human beings. Um, I think Ephesians is a book that can help us do that. And so, um, right at the beginning, can I encourage you, uh, I always like to encourage you at the beginning of the series, to have your own personal adventure with this book. Um, don't rely on Sunday mornings to scream feed you. Um, jump into this book for yourself. Um, so I want to encourage you really practically to do six things with the book of Ephesians over the next three months. Okay, so we're going to be exploring through September, October, November. Um, so really simply, um, read it. That's the first one. Um, they say it takes the average person about 20 minutes to read the book of Ephesians from start to finish. That seems quite fast to me. I'm a slow reader. Uh, half an hour, let's say half an hour. Um, but read it. If uh, nobody takes half an hour to read, um, all of us have the time to read it multiple times, uh, I would say, every week while we're going through this series. I'm being ambitious here. Um, so read it, read it fast, read it slow, read it in different translations. Uh, one of my favourite things, read it out loud. Like your housemates will think you're mad. Read, walk around the room and read it out loud. Uh, if the people in your house will let you, read it out loud to them. I, I don't need to let me do that. Um, but uh, read it. Uh, and read it again. Um, secondly, study it. And I, I know that word kind of scares some of us. Um, I guess what I want to encourage you is you don't need to be super smart or super academic to study the Bible. Um, you just need to be curious. Be curious. Just be inquisitive. Have a Bible and have a notebook. And write down your questions and the bits you find difficult or tricky. Write those down and, and be patient with them and stick with them wrestle with them, and wonder about them, um, and study, and use the mind that God has given you uh, to wrestle with what this book means. Some parts of it are easy, some parts of it are tricky. Um, use your mind and, and dig into God's word. Um, third thing I want to encourage you to do is to meditate on it. Um, don't just analyse it to death with your analytical brain. Um, the Bible encourages us again and again to meditate on God's word which means to kind of slow down and chew on it like a dog with a bone. That's kind of the image, I think, with, with meditation. Um, you may want to just take a phrase uh, that, ca- that catches your attention, an image uh, that Paul uses in Ephesians, and just carry it through the week and turn it over in your heart and see how it sparks your imagination, see what see what comes to life and what comes to life. Meditate on um, God's word, memorizing um, a phrase or a sentence or a verse um, can really help you with that. Some of you may uh, be, be more ambitious and memorize uh, longer chunks of the book, but meditate on it. Fourth thing is talk about it. Uh, we learn far more as we explore God's Word together than we do on our own. Um, so talk about it. Talk about it in your home group. You're also allowed to talk about it outside home groups. Okay? So talk about it when you're meeting each other for coffee or lunch. Um, Chat about the kids, chat about how work is going, chat about the weather. But why not also ask each other, what has God been saying to you this week through the book of Ephesians? Um, what are the questions that are arising for you? Um, talk about it uh, with each other. Uh, fifth thing 
is cramped. Um, you're going to notice when we get into Ephesians that the, the book itself is steeped in prayer. Paul is often praying as much as he's preaching in this book. So whatever you read in it, turn it into prayer. Um, pray it. Um, and then the sixth thing is walk it. Um, it's a, a quotation that I love from a, an old Jewish rabbi who said, the Bible gets into your heart through your feet and not just through your head. Um, I think that's tremendously helpful and you'll notice as we go through Ephesians, the idea of our walk, how we walk, is really important in this book. Um, so in some ways I want to encourage you, if you can find one thing every week that, that you can start to put into practice in your life, that will do you more good than filling your notebooks full of deep and profound thoughts. Find one thing you can, that can change your walk uh, as you go into the, uh, the week. Uh, if you like. So there you go, there's my six-fold encouragement. Uh, to have your own adventure with Ephesians uh, over the next few weeks. Let me take a drink of water. And then we're going to think a little bit just about the beginning of the letter. Um, actually, I'm going I'm to read the beginning of the, the middle. So uh, I'm going to read the beginning of the letter and the end of the letter. Uh, so, so we'll have a little bit of a, an overview of the book uh, this day. So this is how the letter begins. The start of Ephesians. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so that's the beginning, which we'll come back to in a second. And here's how the letter ends. Um, Tychicus, this is chapter 6, verse 21. Tychicus, the dear brother and faithful servant of the Lord, will tell you everything, so that you also may know how I am and what I am doing. I'm sending him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are, and that he may encourage you. Here's the very end. Peace to the brothers and sisters, and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with an undying love. Love that ending to the letter. Grace to everyone who loves our Lord Jesus Christ with an undying love. All, all I really want to do for the rest of our time this morning is kind of zoom in on just a few key phrases, mainly from the opening the letter. We might refer to the ending uh, again in a wee moment. But I want to just pick out a few key phrases and see how they kind of set the tone uh, for, for the rest of what's to come. Uh, and some of you have heard me uh, talk about these words many times, but I, I love, I think we need to start here. Um, Paul begins nearly every letter that he writes by wishing those he's writing to grace and peace. He, he varies the wording a little bit, but those are the two things and he tends to and pray for them and wish for them and hope for them as he begins. And you may have noticed that in the case of Ephesians, he says them again at the end, peace to you, grace to you. Um, and I always want to say, for Paul, I don't think these are just a formality. They're not just a decorative flourish, like kind of a nice way to begin or a nice way to end a letter. I think for Paul, those two words would be better than any other two words he knows sum up the heart of the gospel. They tell the story of the gospel. What, 
What is the good news of the gospel about? It is about the grace of God, um, which is the love of God, the kindness of God, which is given to us freely, given to us gladly, given to us generously, without us needing to earn it or strive for it or work up to it. Just given abundantly, lavishly, freely. Um, grace is that thing that surprises us. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound. Grace is the, the very heartbeat of the gospel. So later on in Ephesians, Paul is going to say, it is by grace that you're saved. It's the very heartbeat of how the whole story of salvation works. It's God's love freely given, gladly given, generously given. The grace of God. Um, but what does the grace of God bring about in our lives? What it brings about is peace. It makes peace, uh, peace with God, and also peace flowing over into the other parts of our lives. And in the Bible, every time the word peace is used, I think in the background is the, the, the great Hebrew word in the Old Testament, shalom, which means wholeness and well being and fullness of life. Um, sometimes we use peace just to mean kind of peace and quiet, kind of the absence of noise, <laughs> kind of nice and quiet, nice and peaceful. But in the in the Bible, peace is this big, blazing, positive, vigorous word where everything is well. That's what it means. So what is the gospel about? It's about the grace of God, freely and generously and gladly given, which makes peace in our lives and in our world. Brings shallow, bring gold, brings gold shallow um, to our lives. So I think um, it would be hard to find two better words to tell the story of the gospel or two better things to bless other people with. Um, I know I've said it before, but I, I think we, we do well to copy Paul's example of when we're, if anybody still writes letters, uh, why not wish the person you're writing to grace and peace? If you're emailing somebody, if you're texting somebody. Lots of things you can say to wish someone a good day. Um, I think it's hard to find something better to speak over someone's life. And I, I wish for you God's grace and God's peace. That is what I want for you. That is what I, I pray for you. Um, so that's pretty good for just two words. Uh, at the beginning of the letter, at the end of the letter, uh, grace and peace. Um, Paul speaks of himself this way as Paul, an apostle. Um, that's how Paul usually identifies himself. Uh, the word apostle simply means one who is sent on a mission, one who is sent, sent one. Um, of course, uh, it's a word that was used of the original 12 disciples and also of a few key others in the New Testament, like Paul and Barnabas and a few others. Uh, and obviously they play a unique role in the story of the early church uh, before the New Testament was written down. They were the living witnesses to the resurrection. Uh, Paul, of course, had witnessed the resurrection in a very unusual way, because he wasn't there whenever Jesus originally was ministering and lived and died and rose again, but he met the risen Jesus on the road to Damascus, and so he was one of the apostles who was bearing witness to the resurrection. So, so the word apostle refers to that unique role that those early leaders played in the early church. But I also want to suggest it's a word that is useful for you and I. There's also a sense in which you and I have an apostolic calling. Because you and I are also sent. Is that right? 
Jesus says to us, as the Father sent me, so I am sending you. And you and I also have a purpose and a mission and are sent into the world to be a blessing uh, for God. Um, and one of the things we're going to explore as we go through this book um, is that theme of what is our calling? What is our purpose? What is our mission that we are sent into the world to, uh, to live out? Um, part of growing up is discovering our mission and our purpose. Uh, what it is that we're sent to be. And, um, I, I'm always inspired thinking about Paul. Uh, Paul, when he wrote Ephesians, uh, was was in prison. He tells us that later on. Uh, almost certainly he was in prison in Rome near the very end of his life. Ephesians was one of the last letters uh, that he wrote. Um, and it's amazing just imagine, thinking about Paul and imagining him, him as someone who'd already at that point in his life endured multiple imprisonments and he'd been stoned, and stoned in the sense of rocks being thrown up. Um, he'd been chased out of town, he'd been flogged, he'd been shipwrecked, he'd been hungry. Um, what was it that, and yet, yet whenever you read letters like Ephesians, Paul's voice speaks off the page with courage and hope and joy. You think, what was it that kept Paul going through all of that? And I think a lot of the key is this sense of his calling, of his identity. I'm an apostle, I've been sent by the risen Jesus with a purpose. And so for you and I, if we want to have something of the resilience that Paul has and the courage and the, uh, the joy and the hope that he has, we need, to rec- we, we need to discover something of that sense of our calling that we are sent. Uh, what is it that we're sent in the, into the world to be? Um, so we're going to explore that uh, as we go. Uh, Paul refers to those he's writing to as the Ephesians. I want to think about them. Uh, just for a few months. Uh, we've always got to remember these letters in the New Testament were written to real people in real places. Uh, and so Ephesus uh, was a city in Asia Minor in modern-day Turkey. It's, it's one of those places you can visit still today. Uh, has anybody in the room been to the ruins in Ephesus? Quite a few. People with their hands in the air, go talk to them afterwards. Uh, they will tell you their tales. Um, these are some of the ruins of an old library uh, that you can see there. Uh, it was a, an important city in the ancient world, um, a significant city in terms of trade and culture and influence in that whole region. Um, and also in terms of religion, uh, there was a temple to the goddess Artemis, also known as Diana, uh, of which the, the people in the city were very proud. And the, the ruins of that temple don't exist anymore. But that was kind of the centerpiece of the city. Um, uh, you want to see where, where it is on a map? You love a good map, don't you? Mm-hmm. Um, so, so, a few maps, let's see which one Alan takes us closest in. Uh, so, there is Ephesus. Uh, there. Um, so, you can, you can see where it is in terms of Turkey and Greece, in terms of uh, the modern world. And I, I find Ephesus fascinating because Paul spent more time in Ephesus than anywhere else. Paul was always moving on uh, in his kind of mission uh, to reach new places, but he spent more time in Ephesus than anywhere else. Um, he first visited briefly during his second missionary journey, uh, which you can read about in Acts 18. Uh, and the people begged him to stay longer, uh, and he said he would come back if it was God's will. And obviously it was, because he came back and stayed uh, for a long time. Uh, whenever, he, whenever he left the first time, uh, he left his friends Priscilla and Aquila, and there, 
Uh, they were people he really trusted as teachers of the Bible. And so they were kind of a husband and wife team uh, who he left uh, whenever he, he moved on. Uh, then there was a man called Apollos who also came and preached there. Uh, Apollos seems to have been somebody who was gifted as a preacher but with some major gaps in his theology. God still used him, but there were some things that he hadn't learned yet. Uh, and so when Paul arrived uh, during his third missionary journey in Acts 19, what he found was there were 12 believers in Ephesus. Uh, I love kind of, kind of imagining this. 12 people who believed in Jesus, but nobody had taught them about the Holy Spirit. They had taught about Jesus. They hadn't yet been taught about the Holy Spirit. And so when Paul arrived, he taught them about the Holy Spirit. He prayed for them to receive the Spirit, and they received the Spirit. Um, and so I think that's the moment at which the church in Ephesus is really born. Because without the Spirit, there's no church. Like, they were kind of believers already, but they weren't yet the church of God. Um, and the church in Ephesus was born, and Paul then spent three months in the synagogue speaking to the Jews, which is where he always began, first to the Jews. Uh, and then when they mostly rejected his message, uh, he went to the, the public square, and he spent two years in a public lecture hall speaking to the Gentiles. It's one of my favourite little bits of Paul's story. He hired a public lecture theatre, and for two years in the city of Ephesus, he taught about the kingdom of God. He taught about Jesus. He told the good news. Um, his time in Ephesus ended up stretching to about three years in total. Uh, and it says in Acts that all the Jews and Greeks in the province of Asia, so that's this whole area, um, heard the word of the Lord. So through Paul being there in Ephesus, the, the word spread through that whole region. Uh, the power of God was evident in Paul's ministry. Uh, people were healed of sickness. You read about it in Acts 19. There were dramatic encounters with evil spirits. Um, in one very dramatic moment, People in the city who'd been dabbling in sorcery and witchcraft and the dark arts um, brought their books of sorcery and had a bonfire in the middle of the city because they were convicted as they listened to Paul um, to turn away from those things that they'd been dabbling in. It must have been a very dramatic moment in the city. All these uh, books that cost huge amounts of money uh, being burned as people turned from, from that uh, to, to the light of Jesus. Um, there was also opposition in Ephesus, um, led by people in the town who were making a lot of money out of the pagan temple of Artemis. Um, and when people turned away from the pagan idols to Jesus, uh, they weren't making so much money anymore. And so they stirred up a riot in the city. And again, this great dramatic moment when Paul and his colleagues were brought in and everybody in the city was chanting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Uh, it was this moment of tremendous danger for Paul and his companions. Uh, Paul decided at that moment that it was time to move on uh, and went on and preached in other places. Later on, um, he came to a port uh, just down here in Miletus and called the Ephesian elders to come down to where he was so he could say goodbye to them. Uh, so after spending three years with them, he got to know them really well. And he had this tremendously emotional uh, goodbye uh, that you can read about in Acts 20. That's just a little whirlwind of background of uh, what was going on in, in that part of the world. Um, but here is a puzzle, uh, a little bit of a mystery. Um, in most of Paul's letters, he deals with 
um, as you read them, specific issues that arise in the church, like um, heretical teaching that was going on that needed to be challenged, or um, moral issues that were arising that needed to be challenged, or conflicts that were going on in the church. So if you go to Galatians or Romans or Corinthians, you find Paul dealing with those kind of specifics of what was going on in that church. But we don't get any of that in Ephesians, uh, which is a little bit of a puzzle. And even more puzzling is this. Uh, in most of Paul's letters, he ends at the very end with kind of personal greetings. You know when you get to the end of Romans? You get loads at the end of Romans, where he kind of greets by name the people that he knows in that church. Um, and so he kind of says, say hello to them and tell them to be nice to their mother. And it's a bit more profound than that. But he, he has lots of individual messages for specific people in the church. But in Ephesians, where Paul spent more time than anywhere else, we don't get any of those personal readings. Uh, this has kind of puzzled people as they've, they've read this letter. Uh, people have wondered about it. And the best suggestion that we have is that perhaps, and we don't know for sure, but perhaps this letter was intended as a kind of circular to be taken to a number of different churches around the province of Asia. And that perhaps Ephesians was the main church uh, that it was addressed to, but it was also to be taken around the others. Uh, one, of the, one of the reasons people wonder about that is some of the manuscripts that we have of Ephesians have the words in, in Ephesus at the beginning, and some of them don't. Some of them don't have an address at the beginning. They're just addressed to God's holy people. No, no place mentioned. Um, and so people have wondered, I think it's a fairly good guess. Maybe this letter was intended to be taken around a whole bunch of churches. And so Paul avoided including specific details which would make the letter less relevant to the other churches uh, that it was going to be taken to. Um, and for, for you and I, the reason why that's going to be important is... Um, I think it, it gives Ephesians a very special flavour. Um, it's really good when we read the other letters to read about how Paul solved problems in the church. But what we get in Ephesians is kind of Paul sitting down to say, positively, what is the church meant to be? So he's not problem solving at this point. It's, it's his most simple, straightforward, positive statement of what does it mean to be the people of God? What, why are we here? What is God doing in the church? Uh, so if you want to see how Paul solves problems, you might want to go to Corinthians and Romans and Galatians. But if you just want Paul to tell you, what does it mean to be the church? Um, what, what, is, what is the story of what is going on with the church? Then Ephesians is, I think, uh, the place to go. It has a very special place, I think, uh, because of that. So and where some of these things are maybe Bible word information that all of these interested in. But I want to finish uh, with something that I think I hope will be helpful uh, and encouraging for all of us. Uh, but I want to focus for the last few minutes uh, on this. Paul addresses the letter to God's holy people. Uh, traditionally, that was translated as to the saints in Ephesus. Uh, most literally, what Paul says is to the holy ones in Ephesus. That's what he says. Who's this letter for? It's for the holy ones. Right. Let me ask you a question. Is this letter for you? Um, do you feel like you're being addressed if I say, here's a message for the holy ones in Mount Sandal? 
um, the language of the saints and the holy ones um, can sit a little bit uneasy with us. Um, I wonder how you feel about that language when I say someone is a saint or a holy one. Uh, maybe what comes to mind uh, when we hear those kind of phrases, maybe we think of the religious art that we've seen of saints with a halo around their head and kind of carrying a little child or a lamb. They, they don't look very much like the rest of us. They're kind of set apart. Um, maybe you think of some people you know who are just really godly, really spiritual giants. Um, and again, we kind of think of them as a little bit set apart from the rest of us mere mortals. Um, maybe also whenever we hear the language of holy and holy people, um, we also have some kind of negative connotations around that. Uh, people talk a lot about someone being, sorry, it's a terrible joke here, um, someone being holier than thou, right? And, and it's someone who's kind of looks down their nose on you, actually someone who thinks they're better than you are. We have those kind of maybe negative connotations about someone being a holy person. Um, let me ask this question. What kind of people were the, the saints and holy ones that Paul was writing to in Ephesus? I want to I paint you just a little picture. When we get later on in the book, uh, to chapters 4 and 5, Paul deals with kind of practical behaviour, about how we are to live, how we are to walk in our lives. Um, and these are just a few of the things that Paul mentions, right? And this, this is a little bit brutal when you get over the head of it all in one go. Um, this is just some of the things he talks about. He talks about lying and drunkenness and stealing and impurity and greed and foolish talk and bitterness and debauchery, and rage, and malice, and sexual immorality, and obscenity, and brawling, and slander, and coarse joking. Okay, that's just a few. Um, Paul says to the Ephesians, these are things that you need to put off and get rid of from your lives. So the sense I get is Paul is saying, these are live issues in the lives of the Ephesians. These are an ongoing challenge, an ongoing temptation, uh, and some of them are making mistakes and failing in these areas, and they need some help, right? Is that a fair assumption to make? Um, and I think we need to be careful. We can, we can kind of be shocked by that list, but actually, I think this is just ordinary human struggle. I think in most days of our lives, most of us are tempted with dishonesty and lust and bitterness and malice, and these things are at the door of my life every day. They're not somewhere miles away from me, I don't know about you. They're within us, they're around us, they're, they're part of the atmosphere. And Eugene Peterson has this lovely phrase where he says, when you get close enough to any real church, you discover that the people in it are embarrassingly ordinary. <laughs> again, I don't want to insult you this morning, but I wonder, can you wear that this morning? When you get close enough to any real church, you find the people in it are embarrassingly ordinary. People struggling with everyday temptations, dishonesty, bitterness, lust, greed. Um, I want to read you uh, Eugene Peterson's description of his own congregation. This gets me off the hook of insulting you. Right? So this is how he, he describes his congregation where he, he ministered for 30 years. Um, he says, uh, I started to realize, uh, I started to look at this mixed bag of humanity that is my congregation. This is what he says. They're broken, hobbled, crippled, sexually abused, spiritually abused, 
emotionally unstable, passive and passive aggressive, neurotic men and women, men of 50 who have failed a dozen times and know they'll never amount to anything, women who've been ignored and scorned and abused in a marriage in which they've been faithful, people living with children and spouses deep in addictions, lepers and blind and deaf and dumb sinners, also fresh converts excited to be in this new life, spirited young people energetic and eager to be guided into a life of love and compassion, a few seasoned saints who know how to pray and listen and endure, and a considerable number of people who pretty much just show up. And sometimes I wonder why they do. There they are, the hot, the cold, the lukewarm, Christians, half-Christians, almost Christians. That's his description. The mixed bag of humanity that makes up every church when you get close enough. Um, Rich Mullins said this, and I love this, he said, we, nobody goes to church because they're perfect. If you've got it all together, you don't need to go. You can go jogging with all the other perfect people on Sunday morning. <laughs> Every time you go to church, uh, I love this, he says, you're confessing again to yourself, to your family, to the people you pass on the way here, that you don't have it all together and that you need some help. I love that. When you're making your way to church here on Sunday morning, that is what you are confessing to your neighbours. I don't have it all together and I need some help. When you get close enough to any church, you find that we're embarrassingly ordinary. But when I say embarrassingly ordinary, the embarrassment is ours and not God's. That's the thing I want to leave you with this morning. God is not embarrassed by our ordinariness, and he is not embarrassed to call us saints, to call us my holy people. Jesus is not embarrassed. Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. Right? And that's what he calls us. And so we need to try to get used to this. He calls us the holy ones in Mount Sandal. Right? And it's not that he doesn't see all that stuff that we've just been talking about. He sees it better than we do. He sees the reality of it, and he still calls us holy. Why does he call us holy? He calls us holy because we are the faithful in Christ Jesus, the ones who are trusting in Christ, and in Christ we share in the holiness of Jesus. Jesus is the Holy One, right? And we don't struggle with the phrase for him. We, we know that it fits. And it's beautiful. We see the beauty of holiness in Jesus. But what the gospel tells us is when we are in Jesus, he shares his holiness with us. And I know I've kind of run out of time, but I want to take two minutes to say this, because I think this needs to be said really carefully. Um, what is it that happens when you and I are in Jesus? When you and I are in Christ, two things. God calls us holy, Right? He pronounces that over us. He declares that over us because we are in Christ. But also, he then puts his Holy Spirit in us and he begins a process and a journey of making us holy in life and character. And you've got to keep both those two things together. If we forget that he declares us holy at the beginning, we get really anxious measuring our spiritual progress, trying to, trying to work out, am I holy enough yet? 
How am I doing? How am I measuring up? If we forget the second part, we're just content to be declared holy, but we lose any hope of transformation uh, of our nature, of the fabric of our character. And I don't know about you, but I find the idea of a spirituality that doesn't change me deeply, I find that really sad, really depressing. We need a gospel that changes us deeply. And so whenever God said, God looks at us and says, you are my holy ones, he is declaring in advance what he then intends to do in reality. It's, it's like a prophetic statement over our lives where he calls us holy and then he makes us holy. And that's a journey and a process and it's messy and it's never a linear straight, straight line and there's ups and downs. But that's really what he intends to do. And so kind of as we begin this series, what I want to encourage you is to look uh, at those around you. Philip, uh, Philip Morrow loves it when I get this photo up because it's the back of his head. <laughs> this, is, this is the only thing for the sermon. Um, I, wanna, I want you just to look at the people sitting around you um, and see what you see. Um, what do you see when you look around you? Um, I think what you see, I don't think it's insulting to say it's, it's ordinary. These are ordinary human beings. And the more we get to know each other, the more we can be honest about that. And we're not going to grow if we're not honest about that. But the thing I want to encourage you to do is to look again uh, Eugene Peterson says we need to take a long, loving look at the people who are our brothers and sisters in the church. So when you look first, what you see is embarrassingly ordinary. When you look again, what you start to see is under the surface of this ordinary life, God is at work. He has called these people holy and he is making them holy. He's making something beautiful in the middle of these very messy, ordinary human Lights. And so that's, that's your application for this week. Is I want you to practice looking at other people in MCF, seeing them in their ordinariness, and still saying, God has called them holy, and he is at work to make that a reality in their life. And I also want you to practice looking in the mirror, and looking at yourself in all your scruffy, messy ordinariness, and saying, God has called me one of his holy ones. And he is at work in my life to make something beautiful. That's, your, that's all you got to do this week. Um, is practice wearing that double identity that we are scruffy and messy and ordinary. Um, and also we are saints. We are holy ones. <laughs> because that's what God has called us. Sorry for going long this morning. Um, let's pray. Um, and then let's sing together as we, as we finish this morning. Um, let me encourage you, if you'd like someone to pray with you this morning, a couple of people up here uh, in this corner who would love to pray with you uh, before you leave. Father, we ask that you would take these things that we've been thinking about and that they would find a place uh, deep within us, that they would land somewhere where we really need uh, to hear these words. I want to pray especially those of us who feel this morning excluded by our struggles and our temptations and the mess that's in our lives and the things that we feel ashamed of and the things that are bloody. Father, would you help us to hear again the good news of the gospel this morning?
that those are the kind of people you have always welcomed and called and invited to be part of your family. We are not excluded. We are invited by amazing grace. And you give us the holiness of Jesus and you call us your people. You call us brothers and sisters. You call us your holy ones. Father, help that good news to reach the deep parts of us this morning. Thank you that you are at work in our lives, making us holy, making us like Jesus, making us new, making something beautiful out of our lives. Help us to see that this week and be hopeful for ourselves and for our brothers and sisters. And we pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.